It is October 1st, hard to believe, but September was a tumultuous month around the world. While the United States was dealing with uh, a number of hurricanes that hit our mainland, uh, there was also a natural disaster taking place in Mexico. A devastating 7.1 earthquake hit Mexico City on September 19th, which ironically, coincidentally, occurred on the 32nd anniversary of the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, which was 8.1 on the Richter scale. Our current, our current earthquake in Mexico City took 300 lives. The one in 1985 killed close to 10,000 people. Uh, along those lines, NBC revisited a uh, 2008 study in which the U.S. Geological Survey found that there is a greater than 99% chance of a 6.7 magnitude quake or larger hitting Southern California in the next three decades. Uh, the report states that this type of earthquake along the San Andreas Fault, and you can see it on your map, could kill an estimated 1,800 people, injure 53,000, and result in over $200 billion in damages. The report continues. California's infrastructure could be crippled for weeks, if not months. And in a stark recognition of those numbers, in October of 2015, Los Angeles enacted the nation's most sweeping seismic regulations requiring about 14,000 buildings to be retrofitted so they will withstand violent shaking. The only problem with the refitting in Los Angeles, say seismologists, is the expensive process is happening too slowly. We today introduce a new sermon series, Fault Lines, Division in the Corinthian Church. The name of this teaching takes on special significance here in Southern California. Outside of our chapel, if you'll look north, you'll see the San Gabriel Mountains, which is the only thing separating us right now from the San Andreas Fault. In our region, there are ongoing earthquakes that are generated as a result of the Pacific, the Pacific Shelf grinding up against the North Atlantic, North American tectonic plate. How many earthquakes, you ask? Every day, we have a bunch of earthquakes here in Southern California. If you didn't know that, uh, this morning, to be precise, I checked. We have had five earthquakes in Southern California in the last 24 hours, 58 earthquakes in the past seven days, 267 earthquakes in the past 30 days, 2,931 earthquakes in the past year. Now, obviously, these aren't all felt because they happen miles beneath the ground, but seismologists down the street at Caltech assure us these things are likely happening as we sit here in church. Now, just as our city prepares for earthquakes because we sit on this famous fault line, the Church of Jesus Christ has had historical fault lines. A healthy church would recognize that there are these people, when they grind up against each other, we create tension. And oftentimes when broken people are pushed up against other broken people, in a very close environment, you end up with 
potential devastating division, an earthquake in a church. The Corinthian church uh, was and still is a model of a vibrant church in danger of implosion because of the sheer number of potential faults, fractures, division points that existed in their fellowship. And the goal of our study of the Corinthian church is to prepare for potential challenges to our unity by studying where these fault lines existed in Corinth. Many of us can relate to this subject because we've had the unfortunate experience of being part of a church split or a church implosion. As we've stated on the cover of today's bulletin, the issues that divided churches in the first century are not all that dissimilar to the issues that would divide churches today. Theological arrogance, spiritual immaturity, unbiblical sexual ethics, unorthodox theology, poor conflict resolution, unbiblical marriages, legalism and selfishness, and finally, worship service disorder. And addressing these divisions is the overarching purpose of Paul's letter, his first letter to the Corinthians. Now, he wrote three of these. We only have two on record. The second one is lost somewhere in the Middle East. But we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and in the first letter to the Corinthians, this church that Paul planted, he is concerned, and his desire is to help them hold it together because that which was beautiful is now seemingly coming apart. And he writes in the 10th and 11th verses of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. Now, this is quite a charge when you think about it on its surface. It's saying, I, I want you to be unified, that there be no divisions among you, that you would all agree. And for clarity's sake, what he's talking about is in matters of the church, in matters that are directly related to faith, uh, not trifling matters. You and I may have a significant disagreement about, about who's going to win the Florida State-Miami game next weekend. That's not what he's talking about. We all don't have to agree that West Virginia's football team is the best in the country, although you'll be wise if you did. The... <laughs> The point is that with, on matters of faith, he's calling us to a unity, and Paul is about to assert his apostolic authority rooted in Scripture and empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk through these issues with the Corinthians to tell them this is the way that Christians should and will think about these things. He is going to give us authoritative direction on all of these subjects. We begin today by looking at the issue of leadership and division in the church. Unity comes, as anybody who's been involved in any degree of leadership in any organization, it comes when people have a mutual commitment to either a leader or a particular vision. When there is not a shared vision for the goal of group action, division within that group is a virtual certainty. So we'll begin our study in Scripture by looking at these two categories, namely our leader 
and our mission. So let's start with verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 1 and see what Paul is saying. He's saying our gospel's leader is Christ Jesus. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, Cephas is Peter, uh, and what he is saying to them is, Chloe's given me these reports that you guys are fighting, and the first thing you guys are fighting about is who, which Christian leader you are following. And he wants to reassert, there's just one leader in our church. And his name is Jesus. And you can see right away the problem of putting Paul and Apollos and Peter's names on the same level as Jesus. You look at that and you go, okay, no wonder that's probably upsetting to the Lord because you're effectively elevating these human beings to the status of Jesus. The idea that being associated with Paul would even compete with the joy of being a follower of Christ is absurd to Paul. And yet here the Corinthians are arguing about who the best Christian leader is. And you've seen that, I've seen that in churches, people arguing about this particular preacher, that particular author, this particular theological bend, this denomination, that denomination. It becomes all-consuming. People tribe up. And they say, I'm I'm affiliated with these people because it makes me feel safe and secure. What is it about us, do you think, that makes us want to do this? The, I follow this person. I think it's pride. I can tell you that some of my least favorite people in my life over the course of my life have been the name droppers. Now, these are the folks who want you to think more highly of them by virtue of the people with whom they associate. Uh, Namely, they would say... The entourage I'm a part of is more highly placed than the entourage you're a part of. And the one reason I find people who name drop so unattractive is because at different times in my life I've been that guy. And those people remind me of that. You ever found that? That the people who sometimes irritate you the most are like reflections of you? You're like, oh, I can't stand that person. They're just like me. Well, this is sort of kind of that for me. Here's a test you can administer to check yourself on name dropping. If the person whose name you just dropped was asked if they knew your last name, would they know it? So I have a list of these things I told you I have quite a bit of experience at. Here are other tests to see if people who call you good friends are actually your good friends. Have they ever been to your home? If they were asked the name of your significant other, your girlfriend, boyfriend, and or your spouse, would they know the name of your spouse? If any of the answers to these questions is no, then the person to whom you are saying is a good friend of mine, or hey, they're a close associate, they're probably not. And I can tell you from personal experience, the reason you're likely doing this is it's rooted in your own insecurity about who you are and about your value as a human being. You want to say, I know Paul. I'm close to Apollos. I'm one of Peter's guys. I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm connected. I'm impressive. You want people to know that you think you're important. You want them to think you're important. Paul's trying to communicate to people as it's regarding the church. There's only one leader that we need to be associated with, and his name is Jesus. And the fact that you don't know 
that you're valuable to him is the real issue in play. He wants you to know that you're secure in him so that you don't have to boast about who you're associated with. Paul says this in the third chapter of Corinthians, and this shows that he's reiterating what is clearly a problem. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that the messenger is not to be the focus. We're mere human beings, and being associated with another human is nothing compared to being a friend of God's. Ultimately, this is what your soul and my soul are longing for. And so when we hear those words coming out of our mouth that are basically communicating to others, I wish you'd tell me I was valuable. That should be a really great barometer that we don't have the clarity of heart and mind that we need that Jesus is the one we are following because he adores you. He thinks highly of you. What I'm about to tell you, the story I'm about to share, is going to sound like a complete contradiction of everything I just said. Uh, Yesterday, I had the privilege of speaking to the Philadelphia Eagles football team chapel. Now, I know uh, that sounds grand and everything. Uh, I got the opportunity because a friend of mine is the strength and conditioning coach for the Eagles. Yes, he's a friend. He knows my wife's name, and he's been to my house. So let's get that clear right up front. I also told the guys last night that the thing I was most uh, intimidated by in going to speak to them yesterday was not that they were professional athletes, but that I was 50 pounds overweight and going to see my strength and conditioning trainer friend. That really is frightening. It was not lost on me that the least fit man in the room was preaching to probably the best conditioned athletes in the world. This is the reality. The messenger is always imperfect. I shared this story with them illustratively, and hopefully this will help you appreciate what Paul is trying to say to us. Uh, I said, welcome to Los Angeles. What if I told you today that my friend Josh and I have personal invitations to you to go to a party at Denzel Washington's house in Hollywood? Have you ever seen Denzel Washington's house? To call it a house would probably be an understatement. Um, It's a castle. All right, he's also my favorite actor. The Book of Eli rocks the house for preacher boys. Okay, so um, I, I said, what if Josh and I said we've got personalized invitations? They're actual invitations from Denzel himself. He's saying, come and have this great party at my mansion. And then we pass them out, and you're thrilled. And then five minutes later, an argument breaks out. You know, my delivery boy, Chuck, was actually you know, smarter than your delivery boy, Josh. You say, well, my delivery boy, Josh, was fit and trim and looked good without a shirt on, and yours is a chubby old guy, you know, and my delivery boy is better than your delivery boy. How insane would that argument be? It would evidence that they had completely forgotten the point, which is they get to go hang out with Denzel Washington. The idea that Christians would sit around and argue about who the best Christian leader is is like arguing about who's the best delivery messenger. Because that's all ministers are. That's all we are. 
We are messenger boys and girls. That's what we do. To compare us is to actually insult Jesus. It's to say, you know what, I'm not as satisfied being associated with Jesus. I want to be associated with this particular messenger. Our gospel's leader is Christ Jesus. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 and 23, 21 through 23, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We're just the children of God, but just the children of God is so much better than being associated with whoever it is that you think will make you feel better about the person you are. How could you find somebody more highly placed than the king of kings that he thinks highly of you? Our gospel's leader is Christ Jesus. Division occurs because we have our hearts and minds set on the wrong leader, but it also happens when we have our hearts and minds set on the wrong mission. And so we continue with verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 1, and Paul says our gospel's mission is Jesus' cross. Is Christ divided, he asks? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? How does a church measure success? If you were going to assess a leader and say, I follow this leader, what would be the, 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 the terms you use? What would be the metrics you use to say this person was successful at what they do? How does an individual assess what constitutes a great Christian And Paul is saying that the definition of a successful leader is the one who's a servant, not a superstar. Christ was a servant. It was his sacrificial leadership that was and still is the focus of our worship and our submission. And only the power of the Holy Spirit working in a life can save somebody. There is nothing that a human being can do to make somebody want to believe in Jesus. That is a work of power that comes by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's power is working because of the finished work of the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. Jesus has been punished so that you would never have to be. Your sins forgiven from last to first, past, present, and future. As well, the righteousness of Christ, His holiness, exchanged with us on the cross, our dirt put unto him, his holiness transferred to everyone who would ever believe. Jesus knew the names of everyone who would ever believe. Personalized invitations coming to you. This gospel, the proclamation of this gospel, this is what is the power of God. It's the power of God reawakening and awakening people to know what they are called to, relationship with God. In our text, you also see the Corinthians dividing according to who baptized them, which is also almost as funny as who led me to Christ. Paul reminds the gang that Jesus is the one who saves The water is symbolic of his cleansing from our sin. It's his cleansing from our sin that saves us. 
And the person administering the baptism is not only insignificant by comparison to Jesus, but baptism isn't the mission. Baptism is the byproduct of the mission. In contemporary churches, some ask the question regularly, how many baptisms do you have? And this becomes kind of a badge of honor for the church. And some of those churches are super guilty of rebaptizing Presbyterians because they were sprinkled or poured as children. And then counting it in the plus column, that always kills me. We baptized 10,000 people this year. Really? How many of them were new converts? Two. But the other 9,900 were Presbyterians, and we thought it was improper that they were baptized the way they were. But look at us, we're making a difference for Jesus. Anyway, that's a side note. Um, what do you use to determine whether a church is effective or successful? Paul says the mission is to preach the gospel. It is God's business to know how many actually come to faith. He says this, in verses 14 through 17, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We celebrate when people get baptized here. We love baptizing people. It's a command that if you believed in Jesus, you are to be baptized. It is part of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But don't get it confused. The mission is the proclamation of the gospel. Baptism is what we get to do when God decides to wake somebody up to the reality of the faith. Our mission is not baptism. Our mission, Paul's mission, was to preach Christ. This is the gospel's mission, Christ's cross. When that gets confused in churches, when people get off on tangents or onto our mission is Reformed theology or our mission is this particular definition of baptism or our mission is this particular definition of this particular subset of theological issues, when we get away from the gospel being the mission, we end up in real trouble and division results. And one not need look beyond today's headlines to see the divided condition of Western culture. Ethnically, politically, socially, we seem to be a people increasingly separated into factions. And this description of society can often be applied to the Christian church. I can say this, division in churches is only possible when a church is safe and or affluent. In places around the world where the church is under persecution or clearly engaged in a simple struggle to survive, there is neither room for nor time for infighting. Western Christian friends, we've got too much time on our hands. During wartime, They've said that the old adage is there are no atheists in foxholes. And that during firefights, there is no division. Racism disappears in amazing ways when your common enemy begins to shoot at you. You forget about the petty differences that you may 
carry politically, and all of a sudden now you have a common enemy. In 1914, at St. Matthias's Church in Devon, England, a memorial service was held for a fallen British soldier of World War I, and at that service, an excerpt from a battlefield chaplain was read, and it said, in part, Tell the territorials and soldiers at home that they must know God before they come to the front if they would face what lies before them. We have no atheists in the trenches. Men are not ashamed to say that, though they never prayed before, they pray now with all their hearts. This is the first historic reference we have to that phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. You see, friends, when we forget the purpose of our church, which is to glorify God, and part of glorifying God is His mission, our mutual battle to share the gospel with the world, to be a church that forwards the reality of the gospel, that takes the mission of Christ into the world in all of its forms, when we forget that, we start fighting each other. So we have to ask, are we on mission? Do we have a clear set in our head of who our leader is? Well, I can tell you, our gospel's leader is Christ Jesus, and our gospel's mission is Jesus' cross. That is why PRISM exists. And our hope is, as we move into the future as a church, that we will obey the words of Paul when he said, I want you all to agree, and there would be no divisions among us that we would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So let's pray together for that.